Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. Today, we have a special guest who's actually addressing my class at Chapman University that I teach on the topic of entrepreneurship and venture capital. Eric is the CEO of Private Tech Network based in Kiev, Ukraine, and he will have him on the podcast to talk about the Private Tech Network another time. But today, he's going to tell us firsthand what things look like on the ground in Kiev, where um, the battle reached five minutes of his house where he lives with his family. And he's even got photos of the war within eyesight of his house. So without further ado, please meet Eric. Eric is here. Eric, my you? friend, my brother, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. We have electricity on, so it's good. <laughs> oh, fantastic, fantastic. Eric, let me tell you, to see you even alive and well. My friend, I'm glad my to be alive, Andrew. We're all, we're all lucky here. Well, I know, listen, I've been getting your emails. They've been amazing, um, energizing in every way. So allow me to make a quick introduction. So Eric Kadyarov uh, is a good friend of mine, a business partner of mine, founder of the Private Tech Network in Kiev, Kiev, Ukraine. Um, also, uh, you know, a citizen of the world. I believe he's, he, he, he has a residence in Monaco and knows a lot of people I know, very well respected in the venture capital community around the world. Um, and he's innovating the direction inevitably the business is going in. Um, but one of the reasons I was so lucky to succeed in getting Eric to spend time with us was to tell us just what is going on on the ground with no filter from the BBC or anyone else and a primary source from a guy on the ground with a gun in his house and a family and all that. Um, and with time permitting, I'd love to hear you talk to our class about uh, the private tech network and your business and background. Um, Eric, for your edification, um, you're speaking to a class of about well, I think about 45 students, some are in the classroom, um, zooming in today. Normally I do this every week in person in Southern California. Chapman is a top university. It's uh, by American standards, nothing like the old world of Kiev. It, we're proud that we're 160 years old. Um, so um, you're talking to some very ambitious future venture capitalists and founders from California. So so let, let me uh, pass the, the words over to you. Andrew, thank you for inviting me and thanks for having me. And everybody, hello, yeah, uh, happy to present. Um, I think the topic is obviously to start is update on the war. And like Andrew said, uh, I spent most of my life and career in US. I'm a graduate of Cornell MBA program and I worked for many years, actually 10 years at HP. So my office was in Palo Alto and I could see Stanford buildings from my window. And then I lived in Switzerland and Monaco pretty much doing a lot of venture capital transactions, uh, you know, working with venture capital funds and clients globally. And then what brings me to Kiev? So Kiev is my home city. I grew up here, but also I run a software company called Private Tech Network. And uh, we employ about 50 software developers, uh, all based in Ukraine. 
And in recent years, uh, Kiev is one of the pretty big IT hubs for Eastern Europe. You, you know, interesting uh, new startups, lots of uh, kind of innovation hubs being built here. It's one of the hotspots, as Andrew knows. Andrew, you visited Kiev, right? Yes, I, I, I was a keynote, uh, thanks to Blasi uh, at the uh, Economic mm. Forum of Kiev, of yeah, Kiev okay. uh, a couple years ago. Yeah, I got some slides with some pictures and some numbers. Maybe I should uh, put up the slides so that we also, yeah. And I would like to make it as interactive as possible. So I will speak a little bit about what's happening here in Ukraine. Just feel free to jump in these questions or interrupt at the, just any point. Uh, so this is myself and uh, I worked for HP and also I worked for two big investment banks, uh, Credit Suisse and UBS uh, being based in Zurich, Switzerland. And my focus was working with big ultra high net worth clients on, on asset side. I'm working on private markets. This is basically everything you don't see on Bloomberg, uh, venture capital, private equity, and private transactions. And private tech network was founded about two years ago when we realized uh, you know, there is so much change in AI and in data science that uh, you know, this is a great field to apply new technologies like AI to venture capital. So what happened, actually? So we all know now that war began on 5 a.m. on February 24th. And uh, Russia attacked Ukraine with a full scale. Uh, they attacked the whole territory of Ukraine. Uh, you could see map of Russia and map of Ukraine here on the top. Uh, so obviously, Russia is a huge country. Uh, there is a train called Siberian Express uh, that runs across Russia. So Russia is something like 11 time zones. And once I took this train, and once you travel across Russia, you realize how huge it is. It's, you know, the train goes something for like 10 days. And then Ukraine is here. And obviously, this is in retrospect, but uh, Ukraine is also quite a big country. Uh, I think size-wise, Ukraine is probably one of the biggest in Europe and comparable with the size of France. And then, of course, Russian army is one of the biggest in the world. Uh, I think the number of sites, number, uh, number two army in the world after US, absolutely huge. And then uh, for a number of weeks before the invasion began, uh, we were getting a lot of intelligence, even from US embassy. They were showing pictures of Russian troops accumulating next to borders. So we could see satellite images like this one here on the left. But I think no one really uh, believed that the invasion would begin. You know, you see this picture and it somehow uh, didn't fit my mind. It really seemed like unlikely events, you know, likelihood something like Oregon attacking California. But I guess I personally kind of expected maybe some military exercises, uh, maybe small conflict in the Eastern Ukraine, but definitely not the conflict of this size. And uh, this is what happened. Basically, war began. Um, I, I don't know if you guys read this great book called Black Swan by Nassim Talib that talks about unexpected, unlikely events. Uh, so to me, it looks like ultimate Black Swan event. Uh, war in the middle of Europe in 21st century, uh, full-scale war, uh, the biggest since uh, World War II. So Ukraine was attacked. 
And it's interesting to see what happened before this war. So obviously, if you follow this region politics, uh, in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. And Crimea is a peninsula on south of Ukraine on Black Sea, right here on the map. So it's very nice, very beautiful resort destination, um, kind of looks like south of France. And what happened is Russia annexed it. What they did is they sent troops, including lots of tanks. And after this, they did kind of fake referendum. But this annexation was totally peaceful. No shots fired, nothing. Right. And then after Crimea, uh, Russia started war in eastern Ukraine, in Donbas. You could see it here. It's Donetsk and Lugansk. And here the conflict began. I think Russia was pumping a lot of ammunitions and supplying these regions with weapons and also funding the conflict. And essentially, this eastern Ukraine also got annexed. Uh, there is a border now in between Kiev and Donetsk. So this is what happened before this war. But then if you look even back, uh, we all remember how in 2008, Russia began war in Georgia. Um, I think it was not as much publicized and not much media coverage, but it was a pretty big scale war in Georgia. And before Georgia, uh, Russia began two wars in Chechnya. The first war was uh, started in 1992 and second uh, Chechen war was in 1999. And during these two wars, there were heavy casualties. Uh, Grozny, which is the capital of Chechnya, was literally eliminated. So Russia has this history of annexations and history of starting wars. So obviously, the appetite keeps growing. And after this annexation of Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, you know, they started full-scale war in Donbas. This is a picture of Crimea, by the way. It's very beautiful resort destination. Uh, one more comment is Russia was guarantor of Ukrainian territorial integrity. Uh, there was a Budapest, something called Budapest Memorandum signed in 1994. And uh, the scope of this document was that Ukraine gives its nuclear arsenal. Uh, Ukraine was number three nuclear country in the world after breakdown of USSR. And in exchange, they get territorial integrity guarantees from Russia and US. So obviously, this memorandum was totally violated with annexation of Crimea, Donbas, and all, all the actions. So the war began with a massive airstrike across all of Ukraine. This is a map here that shows where the rockets were fired. So you could see all of Ukraine was hit by rockets, including Western Ukraine, city of Lviv, Kiev, uh, Odessa, south of Ukraine, really massive. So on February 24th, we woke up in Kiev with uh, sounds of explosions and sounds of rockets. And Putin's plan was blitzkrieg, uh, massive rocket airstrike, sending huge columns of tanks, and he wanted to capture Kiev. Again, I think no one believed, including myself, that he wanted to attack all of Ukraine and also attack capital and grab all of Ukraine, which is obviously a huge country. To us, it's, you know, sounds impossible. Someone can control this huge territory. But this is what happened as 
unimaginable as it is. And they also sent uh, a big plan with paratroopers uh, to hit presidential administration and capture President Zelensky. And the plane was shut down. So I think we were lucky because if this would succeed, probably Ukraine would lose central government and you know, no one would know what would happen. Uh, they did it in Afghanistan. When Soviet Union began war in 79 in Afghanistan, they did exactly the same. They sent paratroopers, they uh, captured palace of Amin. Uh, I think he was killed and they established control. So this was Putin's initial plan, blitzkrieg and capture of all of Ukraine. Was the plan to drop them off as in like land the huge IL-76 or as in um, drop them off like through the sky and have them like parachute down? Like I'm trying to- They parachute, they drop them off from the sky uh, and then they land in central Kiev where the President Zelensky and administration and then they capture it. This was the plan. Huh. Uh, but Andrew, you said this is really stupid uh, plan, and I totally agree. I think this whole operation will enter history book as the most stupid and uh, worst planned military operation in history of humankind, uh, because they were also sending columns of tanks, right? Huge, long, like 50 kilometers long columns that were totally destroyed by javelins and stingers. <laughs> And because of this, their losses were so staggering. I will show the figures later, but it's absolutely unbelievable the, the number of losses they had. Yeah, so this is a plane. Uh, the plane was shut down, so initial uh, plan failed. And also they were sending huge columns of tanks marching towards Kiev. A uh, lot of this attack was done from the area of Belarusia. And if you look on the map, uh, I think the distance from Kiev to Belarusia border is something like 100 kilometers. It's really short. And uh, these columns of tanks are in uh, close to Kiev, uh, like end of the same day, right? So you could see all these huge columns. And I agree with Andrew said, this was really stupid decision because these tanks were shot and burned with javelins and stingers, which were supplied by US and a lot of Western friends. Uh, so we were in, I moved my family to basement because uh, we were under rocket strikes. This is my family, this is myself, my kids. <laughs> Uh, so obviously I started to feel later guilty that I did not evacuate family. I didn't want to go myself. Uh, logic was if everybody runs, who's going to fight? But obviously this was dangerous for family to stay here. Eric, no, we had everybody waiting to take his entire family into Poland so he could run his entire operation and business from Poland. And Eric said, no, thank you. Yes, I wanted to stay and fight, obviously, and because we feel like this is our war, we need to defend Ukraine and fight uh, Putin's army and fight for freedom. Uh, but also, I think really no one expected this would start on this huge scale. Uh, I still, you know, it still do doesn't fit my mind. But this huge column of tanks were burned uh, with javelins, and luckily we were supplied a lot of javelins. You could see pictures like this. 
And then in Kiev, everybody started to fight. They gave a lot of arms to all men. I think everybody could get Kalashnikov. Like people were making Molotov cocktail. Essentially, all population wanted to fight, not only in Kiev, of course, across Ukraine. So this huge column of tanks were burned. Um, obviously, this big number of casualties, a lot of tanks destroyed kind of look like this. Uh, this is a Kiev suburb of Bucha, which is literally like 10 minutes from me. It's really, really nice green city, lots of parks. This is how it looked before, and this is how it looked after on the right. Maybe I should show you a video of uh, column of tanks in Bucha. I think it's really illustrative. So this is a nice city of Bucha, 10 minutes from me. Just that minute. Oh, it's three minutes, it's short. And this was maybe on day three after invasion began. And this is a central street, you can imagine. This is all residential, nice looking buildings before war. This is a local guy who walks with a camera after the column was destroyed. He says he lives on the street and this is next to his house. This is 10 minutes from your house. 10 minutes from my house. Yeah, we got lucky that tanks were stopped. Obviously this would be happening to on my street as well. You sent me a photo or a video that you I could see fire from your house. Uh, we were hit by cassette bombs and my neighbor house, which is 100 meters away, burned. Yeah, I'm going to show it as well. Okay. And the guy just keeps walking. So you could imagine the size right, uh, of this column. And this is a scale of destruction, really, literally nothing is left. And by the way, this is a small column of tanks. It's like five kilometers. The big one was something like 50 kilometers and something like 700 units of tanks ammunition. So can you imagine the size? Were these um, Russian tanks halted by Ukrainian tanks and on ground military or airstrike? Uh, they were burned by javelins and stingers not yeah. by ukrainian tanks because ukraine doesn't have uh, so many tanks okay but uh, by javelins that were given by to obviously ukrainian army but i think they gave javelins to also like men who could carry them gotcha. they call it territorial defense wow and this one just goes on and on and on the, the guy keeps walking as you can see
And this was happening not only in Kiev, but across Ukraine in multiple cities, obviously, in Chernigiv, in Kharkiv, in many other places. So you, you could get the feeling for the scale. Did you have to engage in any combat like outside of your house? Yes, I patrol neighborhood and yeah, I had a pump gun and I did, yes. So I think, yeah, this is some of the Ukrainian army. You could see them. They told the guy, turn off the camera and this is the end. Okay, you see the screen now, okay? I keep going. Yes, yes, Let, you know, let's go keep going. And then Ukraine get a lot of ammunition. So this is example of Stinger here. They get a lot of drones uh, from Turkey. Uh, the name of the system is called Bayraktar. It's pictured here on the left. And drones were used also to destroy a lot of tanks. So I think if you go on U YouTube and just search for Bayraktar, you'll see a lot of videos. So many of these tanks were destroyed with the help of drones. And also they sent a lot of helicopters to capture airport called Gostomil in Kiev. This is a picture on the left. There were a huge number, something like 50 helicopters. Many of them also were destroyed with the scalpels. No, I think we can discuss. Uh, you know, he owns big city airport called Giuliani. It's not well, the is one- Is that the same airport that I was flying in out of? Yes, it's the same airport. It's the second biggest airport in Kiev called Juliana. It's very nice. It's not the one that was destroyed by Russians. Okay. Uh, the one destroyed by Russians uh, is Gostomel. But then uh, I think his airport is okay. Obviously, his traffic suffered a lot because of COVID. Uh, I and think now. during the COVID, it was something like 10 or 20% of capacity, but it was operational. I think it's not destroyed like Gostomel, uh, you know, speaking about insurance, the amount of damage is so huge, probably, you know, a lot of these uh, people will not even get insurance. This is another city called Borodanka, and this city is something like 50 kilometers from Kiev. Also quite nice uh, city, also resort destination. This is before and after. And Russians, they hit many civilian objects, like you see the civilian residential building hit by a rocket for absolutely no reason. Uh, so there is a big number of civil casualties exactly because Russians, they were making statement that we are fighting only Ukrainian military, but uh, they started fighting really civilian population. So you could see this huge damage on the right. City of Borodanka is literally destroyed. Uh, maybe 80% of the city is gone. This is also a really nice, really beautiful city called Chernigiv. Uh, it's a historical city with many churches like this. It's more than a thousand year old city. Uh, it's a UNESCO heritage city, uh, lots of beautiful parks. Also heavy, heavy damage, a lot of civil casualties, pictures on the right, um, a really sad story. And this city is hundred kilometers away from Kiev. Again, absolutely no reason to destroy such city because there are no military bases, uh, there is no military infrastructure, and nothing of this kind. Uh, Andrew, question to you. Did you have a chance to visit any of Ukrainian uh, cities when you visited, or you just came to Kiev? 
I only came to Kiev, but um, I was there for the World Economic Forum there, and or the Economic Forum, and uh, it was fall, and it looked like that photo in the upper left with the leaves changing, and just spectacular and beautiful. Vasily, you know, the owner of the airport, your friend, put me up at the uh, at the Fairmont, I think, on the river, um, and I, I, you know. I saw the most beautiful city in the Slavic world. Uh, it was amazing. Yes, and even small cities like Chernigiv, uh, this city was renovated over the last 10 years. You know, lots of investment by mayor. It was becoming a really nice tourist destination. You know, getting tourists not only from Kiev, but from all over. And obviously, we all feel terribly sad about this, this destruction. Uh, Kharkiv? Again, Kharkiv is a big city in the eastern Ukraine. It's close to Russian border. It's Russian-speaking population. Most of the people are Russian. Um, huge amount of destruction. Also, maybe 30% of the city is, is gone. This is a central square in Kharkiv. In the picture here, there's a building. Uh, this is the biggest square in Europe called uh, Freedom Square. And it was hit by Russian rocket. This, you could see this building. The uh, city of Odessa, uh, southern U Ukraine, also resorts and port city. This is Odessa Opera, uh, very nice city. It's about four four hour drive from Kiev. They planned to attack Odessa and actually capture Odessa. They had Black Sea fleet next to Odessa. And as you saw recently last week, the number one warship in Black Sea was sunk, uh, named Moscow. Uh, Andrew, yes, uh, I helped with that, but also I helped, uh, you know, to coordinate shipments with my Ukraine, U.S. contacts in uh, close to Pentagon, etc. So I'm, I was on the calls daily on this, yes. And then port city of Mariupol. Uh, this is a city on Azov Sea. I think now everybody knows about tragedy of Mariupol. It's a huge tragedy indeed because Russians uh, encircled the city. City is blocked. With something like uh, now it's more than a hundred thousand civilians in the city, and then uh, Russians are using the tactics they use in Syria in Aleppo, uh, bombing city to ground zero and huge amount of destruction. So I think you see you could see a lot of coverage of Mariupol in media now, uh, but city is still fighting. There is Russian Ukrainian fighters in city, and unfortunately lots of civilians still left uh, left in the city. They don't have water, electricity, or any food supply for more than a month now. The truth is Russian media and also Russians, they continue to lie. Uh, I've been following Russian media quite closely, watching a number of channels. They initially hide in facts about the war, obviously lying about casualties. Uh, this, this evacuation of civilians also Russia violated, even we had Easter holiday, uh, they violated uh, ceasefire. And unfortunately, because of this, uh, lots of civilians left in the city. And obviously, I think no one knows the uh, death toll of civilians in, for, for example, Mariupol. But I think it's really high. You know, I've seen numbers as high as 20,000 or maybe more. Uh, this is airport close to Kiev that I mentioned, Gostomel. And it was a base for 
Ukraine has a company called Antonov, designing Antonov planes. Uh, they designed biggest plane in the world called Maria. Maria in uh, English is uh, dream. Plane is here on the on the left, and unfortunately, they hit and burned the plane. So this is this is what's left. Uh, home city of Kiev, Andrew, you saw it. It's also very nice green city. This is it. I think damage of Kiev is not as big as in other cities. I think we have something like 50 or 60 buildings, some are residential hit, uh, some houses burned even in my neighborhood. But overall city is alive, uh, city is functional, city is well protected. Uh, I was in the center just a couple of days ago. I think many people are coming back. So, uh, but this is some pictures of Kiev. Uh, they hit this rocket, this is a television tower, uh, or some missiles were shot in Kiev. And this is some damage. So even, even Kiev was, was impacted. Uh, this television tower actually is next to Babi Yar, which is a historic memorial to Nazi Holocaust. And uh, Russians hid this memorial. So it's quite symbolic. With the denazification. Yes, denazification, exactly. So full-scale war is also sky fight. Uh, we had jet fighters shut down, we had helicopters shut down. This is some pictures also, I think if you go to YouTube, you could see some, some videos of these fights. And um, I think it looked like stupid military operation, and I think we somehow hoped that it would end and somehow Putin would pull back. Obviously it didn't happen. They just keep sending and sending columns. These columns of tanks next to Kiev, uh, we were getting messages like column of tanks, 200 tanks is spotted or 200 units. And the next one is coming 100. And next one is coming 300. So it kind of looked like endless and endless. They just keep sending the tanks and the tanks were destroyed. So like Andrew said, to me, it looked like the most uh, stupid and worst planned military operation. And, really bad strategy, but this is what was happening. Uh, this is some pictures of the Russian soldiers. Uh, again, casualties are huge in Russian army. I will have uh, some numbers on this, but many of these soldiers are really young, like 18 or 20 year olds. Uh, they don't get any training, like they get drafted and three or six months later, they're sent to combat. And obviously this is one of the reasons why casualties are so, so huge. Uh, Russia was not shipping bodies uh, back to Russia. The official count is something like 22,000 Russian soldiers dead. They were using mobile crematoriums. Pictured here actually stationed in Belarus. I think they moved some of them to Mariupol now. Uh, Ukraine asked Red Cross uh, to help uh, to move bodies back. I think there is some progress, but still this, this is a big problem. And this is a slide on Russian media. So I watched some Russian channels. This is the main uh, Putin's propagandist, Kiselev. And uh, they continue to high losses, maybe for two weeks. They were saying there is no war. They call it special operation. Uh, so people are not allowed to say war in Russia. I think uh, there were some protests in Russia and many people actually were put to jail for protesting war and saying this is a war and not special operation. 
So the propaganda machine works like in you know Hitler style, like Goebbels style. So Russians they captured Energodar, uh, which is uh, place for the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. Its capacity is six gigawatt. This is a picture here. So Russians captured it. There were some fights, some rockets fired. I think there was some damage, but for some time there was a danger of nuclear disaster. Obviously, everyone remembers Chernobyl in 1986. And the scale, this is much bigger plant. It's operational. It supplies energy to Europe as well. And Russians captured it. So this is act of nuclear terrorism. And then because this is a class and this is MBA class, uh, obviously I like to calculate numbers. So we try to put some estimates, what's the cost of war and what's the economics of war. I've seen different numbers coming from different military analysts. Of course, it's really difficult to estimate, but the numbers I have seen the war cost Putin something like 15 to 20 billion per day. And then, of course, speaking about the strategy, this is uh, one of the rocket complex anti-aircraft systems that Russians use called Panzer. Uh, the price for this is 15 million. And there were pictures of several of these systems burned with Molotov cocktail, which is Bandera smoothie. So you have $15 million system burned with $1 cocktail. So this is economics of war. And Eric, we, we did focus on unit economics in our course here. So yes, unit, I just Putin's unit economics don't look fundable. Exactly. It's total disaster. This is the number of losses uh, after about one week of war. Yeah. This is a date, March 4th. And on the left, you could see the numbers personnel. 9,166 tanks, vehicles, um, jet fighters, helicopters, obviously huge numbers. They also launched uh, something like 1,250 rockets. So as of today, these numbers are much bigger. So today we have something like 22,000 people killed, something like almost 1,000 tanks burned, so huge numbers. So I just did a rough calculation of numbers of ammunition destroyed. And I came up with a number of 4.2 billion after one week of war. So you can imagine. So we also put a lot of effort fighting on economic war front. I started to petition CEOs globally asking to remove all business in Russia because it's not compatible with any human or moral values. Uh, sanctions are quite slow. There, there is a lot of support from the West. I think it's unprecedented coalition uh, from US, UK, Europe, really global coalition. But sanctions are slow. So you put petition and then it slowly escalates and then it takes time. So in here, obviously, every day on the ground was important. So we started writing letters directly to CEOs asking to remove business from Russia. And we went globally. We went to US, Europe different sec sectors, companies, banks, uh, stock exchanges, etc. I did maybe more than 1,000 letters myself, and some of them were actually speeding up the sanctions a lot, and we had some really good responses. This is a good response from HP. 
We sent a letter to HPCO on Friday and on Monday he made a decision to pull out from Russia completely. Uh, this is HP statement. Uh, it was an analyst call on Tuesday. And obviously HP is a $5 billion business in Russia, it's huge. So you can imagine, you know, scale of this decision for HP. But also if you look at use of HP systems, uh, HP systems are in banks and telecoms in their space programs, literally everywhere. So you can imagine the impact. And then we went to different jurisdictions, including Switzerland, UK, Monaco. And unprecedented, for example, Switzerland, uh, it's a neutral country. Uh, they make a statement, they make it a government policy, but uh, they broke this neutrality status in 200 years of neutrality. They took a side of Ukraine, which is really unprecedented. Uh, the same happened in Monaco, uh, also Singapore. Singapore is neutral country, but they took the side of Ukraine and they announced sanctions on Russia. Which Singapore has a lot of Russian money. A lot of Russian money. I know Russians in Singapore. I've met them in person. It's a lot of Russian uh, money. It's a big hub for Russian companies. Uh, Russia exports a lot of commodities. I think some, a lot of the Russian money is in Singapore because they don't want Putin to touch it. Exactly. And Singapore is a big hub for Russian companies that go to Asia. Almost every, obviously, Russia has a lot of deals with China and almost every company operational in Asia, they have a hub in Singapore. So it's definitely a very, very big hub for Russian money and they implemented sanctions. But Singapore traditionally will sell bullets to both sides of a war and they've declared a side, which is unusual for, for SG. It's unusual, exactly. They're like Switzerland. It's kind of unprecedented. They're taking the side of one, uh, one country in the war. Like Switzerland, uh, I think they were neutral in the World War II. Nazi gold, sure. Yeah. So this is our part on economic, and we just keep going through companies. Uh, we started tsunami of sanctions because we were going with CO letters kind of on the top level. And uh, I was compiling lists of companies that announced sanctions and list of company state. And you could see the list of companies here. It's really kind of unprecedented. You could see Apple, you could see all auto producers like BMW, Mercedes, Jaguar. You could see FedEx, uh, obviously payment systems like Visa, MasterCard, uh, gaming companies like Nintendo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like logistics companies. Um, Formula One, Russia had Formula One in Sochi, I actually attended. Andrew, exactly like we said, sanctions are important. And I think this is unprecedented level of sanctions. I think we'll see economic fallout. It will be interesting to calculate, but no one knows exactly. It's gonna be in trillions. And for you to realize like for, for days and weeks, we were going, you know, sending those letters and petitions directly to CEOs of companies, banks, exchanges, to some central banks, et cetera, et cetera. To us, it was like sending these this messages. And of course, even to analyze, like how do you know the companies that operate in Russia, right? I use some of the technologies we have in actually private tech network, but even to analyze by sector, like what are the banks operational in Russia, right? It's a huge country and probably hundreds of banks. 
but for us, time was important. You know, I spent all my maybe first three to four weeks just nonstop, no sleep, just just doing this. And I think now tsunami of sanctions started. I think now it's well, very clear. I know, but what's fascinating about your approach, Eric, is that um, you know, in a startup world, when you see a startup selling their product or service to a government, you're like, oh no, government long sales cycle. It's a long sales cycle. You did not wait for governments to take action. You short-circuited directly to the enterprises that you wanted to sanction the country in advance of the government sanctioning. And so this is unprecedented. This is interesting to me that you were pushing me and everyone you knew in your network saying, stop all business with anyone with operations in the Russian Federation. And you hit that fast. You hit it in days. Andrew, exactly. The challenge was fast speed. You know, think about HP, right? It's a huge business in Russia. It's you know, many billions, five billion probably. Hard to walk away from. Yeah. And HP is in Russia for, you know, something like 30 years. It's like, how do you stop HP, right? So in our mind, you know, if you go through petitions or if you go through government, maybe it will come, but it will come in, in your like lifetime. Yeah, all dead, right? It was really essential so that Russia could feel the impact of the sanctions. And approach was really go on the top level, like HP. We send I sent letter directly to CEO Enrique Loris to his personal email. Right. Obviously, one component was update because no one really knew what was happening. Uh, I think obviously in the first weeks, people didn't realize the scale of war is happening in Europe. But the second part was go to the top level and just petition directly. I think we went to Elon Musk. Uh, I went to like Binance CEO, which is the biggest uh, blockchain exchange, etc. And you're absolutely right, Andrew. It allowed to move faster and on the corporate level. Many companies were making decisions fast. Like HP, we were really amazed. We sent email on Friday and on Monday, it was done. Uh, can you imagine? It's really unprecedented you know, for this scale of company and this scale of business. Well, well, government would certainly never move that fast. So that that's the interesting thing you did. Yes, for sure, for sure. Uh, I think and, it's, and it's, your net, it's your network. It's your network. A lot of it is not only myself, obviously, doing this. I think uh, in uh, three weeks, we had something like 20 or 30 people, uh, kind of like myself, doing this, this CEO letter. But a lot of this is, is my network. Yeah, I have quite a huge network. Uh, obviously, not only US, uh, but also UK, Switzerland. We went to a Credit Suisse, we went to UBS, we went to like central bank people because Switzerland moved fast. If you think about Switzerland, usually everything is slow, right? Everything takes months, uh, but Switzerland was also unprecedented speed. A lot of assets were frozen. We were going after specific oligarchs names close to Putin because some people actually funded this war. Obviously guys like Rottenberg's brothers uh, this is also companies that left. So I was compiling this list so you could see also energy companies. It's interesting. Russia is big, oil and gas, right? Everybody thinks that Russia number one industry. But you think about companies like Rosneft or Gazprom, they're using US technology. It's not Russian technology. It's actually Halliburton and Schlumberger to drill Russian oil. 
so really not much is produced inside Russia. And then we had uh, companies like Siemens, Nokia, uh, ABB, many banks like Raiffeisen, etc. Uh, then this is example of Sberbank. Uh, we were petitioning and also stock exchanges uh, like London Stock Exchange, also New York Stock Exchange to delist Russian companies. I think we succeeded. And many Russian companies, I think now all of them are gone, but uh, you could see stock of Sberbank. It's something like one cent from $100. So this is a result of sanctions. And then uh, we could see lines. Um, obviously, we feel sorry for Russian people, but I think this is a war and we have to fight it, including economic war. I think for us, this is a full-scale war. Uh, so impact is huge. I think fallout is going to be in trillions. Uh, many Russian companies got delisted from stock exchanges. Uh, and obviously, if you're the guy who founded like Tinkoff Bank or Yandex, and Yandex was something like $20 billion company, which is a Russian search engine, and now Yandex is gone. So obviously many of these people, I know founder of Yandex and the guy was worth like 4 billion. And now he is not $4 billion guy, he is maybe several million dollar guy. And then Monaco in Switzerland, uh, you know, I work with a lot of Russian oligarchs. So I know some of these guys personally. And many of the assets were arrested and uh, in Monaco in Switzerland, this is Usmanov, this is Usmanov's yacht. Also Vilas, also like offshore accounts. This is Vila on Lake Como, this guy, Solovyov, who's the main propaganda guy. So there is a long list of people under sanctions now. I think uh, it's now several thousand people, but there is a lot of Russian money everywhere. Uh, Andrew, this yacht is actually was in Monaco. You probably could see it. The biggest boat in Monaco. And then this is update as of mid-March. Uh, like I said, somehow we hope that the war of Putin will back and this would end, but still never end in sight. I think now we're in two months of fighting. It's now end of April, unfortunately it still goes on. And this is mid-March, again, city of Mariupol, uh, civilian objects hits, including schools, including hospitals, etc. Uh, this is Kharkiv. This is Kharkiv Central Square, also beautiful city, beautiful square. Uh, Central, Central Square is hit by, by rockets. Uh, this is, they also hit some spiritual places like this monastery in uh, close to Kharkiv called Sviatogorsk. Beautiful place. I was there a few times. So for Russia, they really crossed all red lines because initially the statements were like, we're gonna fight Ukrainian army, we'll hit military object, we'll demilitarize Ukraine, but Russians, they crossed all red lines with you know, civilian attacks, a lot of casualties, you know, places like these historical places. Yeah, I think I have some more people, some more slides, but I think I'm pretty much done. I'll just scroll fast. Um, yeah, this is Odessa. This is Opera Theater in Odessa, Central Square. Uh, this is losses as of mid-March. You could see official numbers. I take these numbers from official numbers of Ukrainian military of defense. Uh, 
And now this number is 22,000 dead and wounded, you roughly multiply by three. Uh, hopefully, yes, but in retrospect, in retrospect, Andrew, uh, in 10 years of Afghanistan war, 10 years, right, of fighting in Afghanistan, which we all know was a tough war, Russians lost something like uh, 14,000, exactly. And scale of loss is absolutely huge, obviously, for Ukrainians, including civil life loss, like in Bucha, uh, which still they, they analyze. But Russians, after they occupied Bucha, they killed something like a thousand civilians. Uh, can you imagine? And this is, I think this is also a list of companies uh, live in Russia. Uh, we keep compiling even companies like Netflix or Disney, et cetera, et cetera. So you could see a huge list of companies. This is really interesting, Andrew. I'm going to show this slide. After some banks pulled out from Russia, um, they started to use blockchain systems to bypass banks and specifically Binance. So we were petitioning a lot of crypto exchanges like Coinbase, like Binance, like FTS, FTX, like Celsius networks, and a lot of structures asking to stop business in Russia. So essentially we hit a lot of crypto and blockchain sector. And obviously this is really important for FinTech developments in Russia. So essentially it means all future FinTech development is dead. In Russia. And this is a list of uh, companies uh, I reached out to, and I use some of the private tech network functionality. We basically pull out algorithmically the blockchain companies uh, globally, and then many of them work in Russia. We also sent uh, letters to a number of VC funds like yourself in Silicon Valley, um, you know, Vinod Koshla, some, some also other big names. And we're really grateful for all the support we get from US and from Silicon Valley and friends globally. But this slide is interesting. And Binance, which is the biggest crypto exchange globally, it's also the biggest in Russia. Their business in Russia is something like 30,000 people and something like 4 billion assets of crypto assets. And Binance also stopped, which, which is also quite amazing. And this is also more and more companies that left. I mentioned uh, some companies that actually like Schlumberger, Halliburton doing oil production in Russia, a lot of consumer companies like uh, Procter & Gamble, for example, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is picture 500 meters from our office in Kiev, Andrew, and they were sending groups of people trying to get to central Kiev, and these groups were destroyed. This is just a picture. Also, this is mid-March, somewhere meter, in... 500 meters? Yes, 500. Our office is here. So if you walk the street, it's like 500 meters. Let me ask one question. And then I want to turn it over to our wonderful students. The planting season in Ukraine, has that been missed? Will there be world famine and uprisings? And will we have an Arab uprising because of the missed planting season? What can you say about that? Andrew, Ukraine is a bread, it was called a bread basket. Uh, it's a huge agricultural producer, uh, producing grain, sunflower oil, etc., etc. And Ukraine was a big supplier to Arab region, including Africa, including places like Emirates, like Dubai. Obviously, the spring season is missed. Uh, impact is big. I think in some... When, when, when would spring planting happen normally? 
Uh, it's now, it's in April and it should be done by May. And because now the, most of the fighting is South Ukraine, South and East, places like Mariupol, Kherson. And if you look Kherson region, it's a huge agricultural producer. So it's definitely impacted. Uh, I think uh, I've seen some numbers of the size of the agricultural impact, but uh, probably it's not exact, but maybe 30% of it is gone of the volume. And it will have uh, obviously impact on the world because how big, also right. other problem is ports. 30%, 30%, 30 uh, I have seen down. numbers as 30% of Ukrainian so you export. Think, you think that Ukraine can deliver 70% of its breadbasket capacity even with this war? Uh, yes, assuming the situation is in Black Sea is normal and under control, which is which is not the case, because they had Russian fleet in in Black Sea. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the destruction of the Russian warship Moscow, which is the biggest. Yes, in uh, Moscow. Yeah, Moscow. Yeah, it's kind of like USS Missouri. It's a three billion dollar ship which was sunk by two Neptune rockets fully designed and built in Kiev. Well, exactly. This warship is actually was supposed to cover uh, the whole Black Sea fleet. I saw it once. It's absolutely huge. Uh, size is like size of two football fields, huge ammunitions. Uh, they had something like 64 S-300 rockets. Uh, I think uh, they also had 16 caliber cruise missiles. Uh, I think there was discussion and investigation if they had nuclear warheads, because rumor was they had two nuclear warheads. And the ship is not even supposed to be uh, close to Odessa, like 100 miles away, right? This That's is absolutely it's dumb. The absolutely. It's the opposite of a startup. It's the opposite of a startup. Yeah, I have a, a question. I don't know if you can hear me. Yeah, yeah. I hear you well. Go okay, ahead. okay, okay, okay. I just want to make sure. Um, so I, I was watching, um, I watched this, this uh, video on YouTube that basically just kind of explained a little bit of the history of how all this kind of came to be and why Russia is invading Ukraine, why they're kind of doing this. And basically they're, one of their main points is that they're kind of like, this is a last ditch effort for them to maintain their power in, um, in that area of the world and that they're kind of like their population is going down and like they're really struggling in that way like do you think that um the way that this whole military operation obviously we you talked about how it's kind of it's very poorly planned out and all of that kind of stuff do you think that that is kind of an indicator of the where Russia is at and do you think like that empire is kind of like in a decline in that way like are we kind of like looking at the end of that kind of a state yeah listen you have to realize that Ukraine and Russia it was like the same country right same language same religion um, actually Kiev uh, if you like check out history Kiev is was capital of Russia before Moscow and obviously they have the same church. It's called like Russian Orthodox. And Ukraine is really peaceful and really you know, multicultural, really tolerant country. We never had any conflicts, you know, multi, 
multiple nationalities lived here. Uh, but also Russia had a lot of businesses uh, before 2014, a lot of Russian banks, a lot of Russian oil companies, you know, Alpha Group, everybody was here. So there was absolutely no reason, <laughs> right, for this conflict. Uh, I think you said it right, the regime is definitely in the decline. I think this is really the end uh, of Putin and his regime with so much blood. But uh, there was no reason to start war of this scale in Europe. I think we all, you know, live as a notion of the world that this is the internet age, everybody could travel, everybody could do businesses, you know, people launching startups. So I, people had totally different picture and obviously this happened, right? But Russia is definitely also fallout from economic sanctions is going to be huge. I don't really see how this regime could exist now. And that, you know, you think about level of sanctions, you know, all the Western companies pulled out. And obviously, if you look at structure of Russian economy, they were getting a lot of components, a lot of products from the West, including, you know, software, technology, semiconductors. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But also think about financial sanctions. Uh, Russian companies delisted from stock exchanges, and there are a lot of Russian companies listed. You know, I mentioned uh, obviously Yandex is a good example, but they had banks like Sberbank. Uh, they had oil and gas companies like Lukoil, etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So think about the impact. But also on the sanctions, uh, I think interesting fact: the reserves of Central Bank of Russia are arrested something like 400 billion. So frankly, we do not see how, you know, this regime and the Putin regime will survive. I think now uh, people want justice. Uh, they should be held accountable, including Putin himself. But also it's not only, uh, only Putin, right? It's a lot of people making decisions. It's what generals, I think it's media people. So we want all these people to be accountable and also Russia needs to pay Ukraine for restorations. I don't know exactly how this mechanism will play out, but damage is obviously huge. I think they will need to pay and rebuild uh, all the cities they destroyed, and uh, this will be the process for sure. Eric, just to, you know, one lesson we learned from World War I was when the Allied powers beat the Kaiser, we had reparations that were so severe on Germany that it gave birth to Hitler. And we had to fight World War II. Um, just something to think about, whereas after World War II, we went with the Marshall Plan and we literally funded Germany and Japan uh, to be, bring the you know, economic Wirtschaftswunder back in place. Um, it, it, it seems like clear and obvious to make Russia pay, um, you know, which leads to a question of mine. And I, I, I should hold my questions back for, for the students, but like, man, my whole experience with Russians and Ukrainians is mom is Russian, dad is, is Ukrainian or vice versa. And the thought of these two nationalities fighting each other in Total Krieg is just heartbreaking. Um, and the idea of reparations, you know, you, know, you know, afterwards, is there any way of viewing this as Putin's war? Or do you view it as the Russian people war and these 18 year olds from Kamchatka or wherever showing up in five kilometers from your home? Andrew, you know, we saw it as Putin's war, 
and obviously many families connected uh, it's the same culture same language we all travel to russia you know lots of businesses uh, obviously people also doing tourism to beautiful places like saint petersburg obviously moscow is a nice city uh, putin is definitely accountable because he devised all this strategy uh, you know he, apparently he has a strange picture of the world in his hand that he wants to rebuild soviet union which he called the big geopolitical tragedy when soviet union collapsed and then he wants to rebuild and then after crimean annexation putin approval rating went up so i think in his mind you know he grabbed crimea and then he grabbed donbass and everybody was fine and then let me hold my, to, let me, let me hold my questions on, and allow the students to ask you questions you and i speak one-on-one -on, -one on mine I, I will try to shut up and you guys ask your questions to my brother and friend here. Yes, guys. Any, any questions? Yeah, happy to answer. Hi there. Um, first of all, Professor Romans, I just wanted to say thank you for bringing in such an amazing speaker. Uh, Eric, my name is David. This is Nika. We are both Russian-speaking students. Мы просто хотели сказать спасибо большое, что вы с нами соединились сегодня, и мы надеемся, что все это кончится скоро, и мы просто хотим сказать слава Украины и что мы мы здесь героям мы, слава мы героям слава мы смотрим мы проверяем новости каждый день и мы молимся что это кончится и спасибо что вы нас поддерживаете там и мы здесь и мы вас здесь Ника has a quick question да Дэвид спасибо тоже вам за поддержку и вы знаете у Украины огромная поддержка со всего мира и особенно из Америки И Америка это номер один партнер там не только по вооружениям, но даже очень много помощи там людям и там беженцы и так далее. Поэтому вам спасибо и тоже ну хочу, знаете, мы хотим делать восстановление после после войны, чтобы вы тоже не забывали Украину, может быть, приехали, делали проекты. Мы не забудем, с удовольствием переедем. Да. Мои родители из Санкт-Петербурга, оба у Ники родители. Моя мама из Киева, мой папа из Одессы, папа из Украины. Прекрасно, прекрасно. Будем ждать вас в гости после, после войны. Спасибо большое. Anyways, Спасибо. switching back yeah, to English. I had a quick question for you. Just simple, you know, thank you for, for helping, you know, Ukraine. What can we do? As American citizens, to to help you and and to help the you know the rest of the civilians in Ukraine from all the way here. Listen, it's a huge coalition. We're really grateful for all the support we get, uh, including from U.S. U.S. is number one ally, and we were getting all kind of help. Obviously, without U.S. weapons, you saw these stingers and javelins. You know, we would be dead like long time ago. I think now there is a huge program coming for land lease and like really heavy ammunitions. You know, talks about jet fighters and tanks. So without this war would be impossible for us. Obviously, Ukraine would be done a long time ago. But also we're getting all kinds of support from people, you know, helping refugees, but even to spread information if you, because apparently many people in Russia, they do not get uh, the information. You know, even if you talk to your contacts or friends in Russia, you spread uh, the facts and correct information. It also helps. So I think whatever, uh, whatever help you could see suitable for for you is 
definitely appreciate it. I should make comment that apparently approval ratings, Andrew asked, is this a Putin's war Russia, but his approval ratings is more than 50% and a big component of this is Russian propaganda. Mm -hmm. So part of the effort was fight Russian propaganda with true facts. There were actually several IT groups, you know, sending messages to Russia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Slava Ukraine, Slava Geroim. Glory to Ukraine. Slava, Geroim Slava. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Professor Romans. Thank you, everybody, guys. And I will send the slides to Andrew for distribution after the call. You know, feel free to share. Also, feel free to send to your friends and network. I think people need to know facts. And again, yeah, thanks for the call and thanks for all the support. Eric, do you have to go? Are, are you out oh, of time? I have time, Andrew. Yeah, it's. Hey, yeah, I can speak. Uh, can I just ask a question? And I'll wait. In. I would expect our our students are normally very engaging. If if we got into the private tech network, by the way, they would be all over you with questions again. But um, with with the caravan, with with, with the, the the line of tanks coming in from you know Belarus into Ukraine, which we saw build up, what was happening in your view of like? Normally there is this way entering, that way bringing petrol, gasoline back and supplies. How do they screw that up? And, and you guys like Robin Hood just attacked it. What is the explanation for such a, a folly? Andrew, explanation as a Russian army is run by all time generals. You know, many of them are like 70 year old that used to run in maybe studying textbooks and running campaigns in Afghanistan. But there is no explanation. And this whole campaign looks like extremely uh, stupid campaign. There's the worst military strategy. It will probably enter military strategy and history books as the worst operation. Because you think about early May, March, right? This huge column of tanks. The one you saw in Bucha is small, like five kilometers. The long one was like 50 or 60 kilometers. I think if you do search on YouTube, you could see some of these huge columns burn. And they are marching uh, along the highways, right, in Ukraine. And you could see them from any angle. So you could, anybody could attack them with javelin or stinger. Yeah. yeah. But then, so this is what was happening. And we are getting like thousands of those stingers, right? So these tanks were just burned. Uh, they cannot change direction because they're kind of limited right to the highway. Uh, but then uh, the other big problem is logistics, because once you go deep inside Ukraine, like 200 kilometers, right, you're not getting supplies, you're not getting fuel. In fact, many of the Russian soldiers, they were not getting food. So as a result, they were looting like stores and robbing people, people's houses right, just to get food. We hear this in the news. Right, but the logistics was completely screwed up initially. And again, this is also a reason for such it's a- Normally a two-way, you need a two-way, you need a two-way avenue to run. Like my, my grandfather worked for the CBGBs in the Pacific. Like he was delivering, you know, 18-wheeler Budweiser beer to the troops, you know? I mean, it was a major logistics. Yes, yes. Major logistics operation. But let me ask you a question, and, and I hope 
my students have a final question and we'll release you um, for, for your duty and thank you for your spending time with us is um, when it first came out and we saw the buildup and Biden was saying he is going to invade. No one believed it. We're saying, why is Biden saying this? Because no one believes it's going to happen, as you said, and then it happened. I thought to myself, like the game of risk, you know, the game of risk, you yes. have, you have X number of armies on like Brazil, X number of armies on North Africa, those are invading. And I thought, I got on a website that shows the number of tanks, the number of everybody, the Russian army versus Ukraine, that it looked like there was a hundred armies on the Russian side and 10 armies on the Ukrainian side. And I think, I'll be honest, both sides are beautiful. I hate the thought of any of these people dying. And then you can't fight that with aggression, with, with, with violence. You must use a Martin Luther King Jr. way of fighting it, like a Gandhi way of fighting. And boy, was I wrong. It turned out that every single man, woman, and child in the population of Ukraine outnumbered the Russian mercenary army. What do you, what can you tell us about this? Andrew, this is a really interesting comment you made, but I was getting a lot of intelligence from US embassy uh, way before conflict. And intelligence was like US citizens in Ukraine, they should evacuate, right? Conflict is gonna start. start. I think Biden and CIA, they warned Zelensky. So we were getting all this intelligence warning, right? War is gonna start. But you know, this whole war seemed so unlikely and it didn't fit you know, my brain and still does not. It just doesn't fit my picture of the world, like Russia of war of Russia with Ukraine. To me, likelihood is like, what's the likelihood of war of Oregon with California, right? You wake up in San Francisco, hearing some rockets from, what's the likelihood of this? So to us, it was like, Russia, Ukraine, same country, right? Maybe Putin will do some military exercise or maybe he will send some of his tanks to Donbass, right? But not the war of this scale. So right. somehow- Right, right, right. You know, I can see, see him saying, put an end to this Donbass nonsense. It's exactly. been going on forever. Yeah. It's been going on forever. Just stop it finally. I never, everyone was always pretending that the Russians were not really backing the breakaway people. And it was Ukraine to Ukraine. Exactly. Like the media exactly. never really said it. Yeah. So uh, back to the point, you know, we, we're getting all these messages. We see huge troop buildup and, you know, huge satellite images, right, of tanks and planes. So you see it, but somehow it just doesn't fit your brain, you know. I didn't, be, and many people didn't believe it. It's, it's still impossible. But also speaking about the numbers, uh, you know, I was also speaking to a lot of military people and strategists, and uh, they sent something like 30,000 uh, troops, elite troops to capture Kiev, right? 30,000, Andrew. And now the question is, Kiev is a huge city, uh, something like 3 million population. 
So then question is how many people, and they were making statement that we're gonna surround people, right? But then if you calculate length of the circle to surround people, it's something like 300 kilometers, right? It's huge. So question is how many people do you need to surround Kiev? And the answer is probably if you do it right, you probably need like half a million people because what they did in, in Grozny in Chechnya it's basically only two roads going to Grozny and you can cut them off and then you surround city, but not the case of Kiev. And what happened also, they started to attack all of Ukraine, right? East, West, North, Kiev, South. And this is also second huge problem because a strategic problem because the army was spread too thin, right? So they had 30,000 people in Kiev and then 30,000 people in uh, southern Ukraine or Donbas, but overall the country is really big. And then another problem was everybody was, wanted to fight in Ukraine, like in Kiev, they were given Kalashnikovs, right, to territorial defense, like every man could, you know, have one. So I think somebody said in Kiev, they gave away like 150,000, right, Kalashnikovs, can you imagine? Uh, I think some of them were like in the first days were given without passports, like you go and grab it with ammunitions. So as a result, Ukrainian army, I think total number of Ukrainian army was 200,000 people. And then they enrolled maybe 100,000 or 200,000 more in territorial defense. So all of a sudden you're looking at 400,000 people fighting for Ukraine. And then Russian army, I think uh, the, it was less than 200,000 spread all over the country. So this was strategically losing war uh, for Putin. So I was hoping you know, they would realize how bad this operation is and would stop it, but still no end in sight. You know, the problem is they're using rockets. They lost miserably on the ground, yeah, but they're using cruise missiles and long range rockets to hit civilian cities. Listen, Eric, Eric, uh, we speak very soon. Um, you, I hope you feel the love and support from the state of California, from Chapman University, from me and all your friends. And uh, I personally, uh, it's been wonderful to get my news from you, which is the Pravda truth. Oh. So, Andrew, thanks a lot for invitation and my pleasure to speak to students. And yeah, I look forward to being in touch. We'll send the slides. And again, uh, thanks for all the support to Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. Absolute. Okay, my friend. Bye, Bye -bye. for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you.